Well, this morning we'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn along with us to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. This morning I would like to deliver a message entitled, Three Keys to Commitment. Whether we realize it or not, commitment touches every area of our lives. It even touches our marriage. My wife and I have been married now nearly 30 years, and we're committed one to another. I love her dearly. She's the only woman in my life, and I protect her. And you know, I can't help but sense among our young people who are coming together in the holy bonds of matrimony that they don't understand this very basic principle that they have to be committed one to another. Also, this year, as you know, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II. And it's good to see the renewed commitment to patriotism in our country. And I don't know about you, but as a pastor, I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to all of our veterans who have fought in the wars preceding this day to preserve the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy at this hour. But you know, brethren, while patriotism is a very high and noble cause, there is even a higher realm of commitment, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'd like to look at this message from three different vantage points. First of all, we want to see what it means to be committed to the cause, then to the battle, and finally to the rules that are set down in the Word of God. Now, as we turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul writes these words to young Timothy. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And notice that he addresses Timothy affectionately as his son. Why, we know that the great apostle Paul was the one who led Timothy to a saving knowledge of Christ. And you will also recall how Paul said to the Corinthians that you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but not many fathers. They did not have many who would naturally care for their spiritual state. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. He was concerned about him. He wanted him to prosper spiritually in the Lord's work. And as he goes on, notice that he instructs young Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy apparently was rather timid and overwhelmed by some of the obstacles that were set before him. 
You will remember how he had ministered the gospel of the grace of God at Ephesus, and he had fought against the evil beast there. Perhaps Demetrius had opposed him one-on-one, and there was so much opposition back at this time that Timothy apparently was somewhat discouraged. And Paul says you need to stand, Timothy, uncompromisingly in the faith that the gospel might not be hindered. Don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ or of me, his apostle. And so he goes on in verse 2 to show him the importance of being committed to the cause. Notice that he says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And there is something that is implied in this passage. Paul is telling Timothy to be a good steward. In Paul's revelation, he uses various metaphors and terms concerning the body of Christ that are unique to his epistles. It is interesting that he never refers to us in his Gentile epistles as disciples. I was sharing to with the brethren down in Dayton at the pastor's conference that the disciples were the learners. They were associated with the kingdom program. You also see references made to them during the Acts period as we are transitioning away from the kingdom and to the gospel of the grace of God. And so the twelve apostles were first disciples, and then they became the apostles that were sent forth with that kingdom message. They only had bits and pieces and fragments of the revelation of God. But when we come to Paul's epistles, as members of the body of Christ, as I pointed out to them, we are the college graduates, because not only do we have a knowledge of God's revelation in prophecy, but now we have a knowledge of his will concerning the revelation of the mystery today. So we've been brought into a fuller knowledge of the revelation of God. Subsequently, Paul refers to us as stewards and ambassadors, positions of responsibility. And as we look at that, we note in the scriptures that the steward was more than merely a slave or a servant. The steward was the one that was over the other servants and the slaves. They were endowed with a great deal of responsibility. On behalf of the master, they often would pay out the wages and dispense the food and also deal with any of the problems at the workplace as they would bring men in for hire to work in the fields. And so generally speaking, they had oversight of the master's work. And, of course, if the steward was unfaithful, it could cause the masters to suffer great loss. And, you know, as we apply that to a spiritual truth here, 
as the stewards of God in the dispensation of grace, we have been entrusted with a precious deposit, not silver and gold and precious stones, but rather something infinitely worth more, the gospel of the grace of God. We are to go forth and faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. And notice that we have the responsibility to teach others this message, to commit this blessed truth of Christ and him crucified to those who are coming up through the ranks, lest this truth be lost. And you know, that's one of the goals that we have set in establishing a new Bible Institute in Milwaukee. The purpose of that is to train men and women in the Lord's work that they might be rooted and grounded in the message of grace. We're not just bringing anyone in. Rather, we want those who are called of the Lord, those who are apt to teach, that we can train them in the Lord's work, that they can go forth to the glory of God and to proclaim this message as we are doing at this hour. One of the brethren out in Phoenix, Arizona, wrote me just the other day, and he said, well, Brother Sadler... What makes you think that this school isn't going to go like all the other schools before it and drift away from its original purpose? And I said to him, of course, that's always possible. And what we're attempting to do is build as many safeguards into the process as possible to avoid that. But normally, whenever a purpose of a school begins to shift, it's usually when there is a change in administration. And I pointed out to him that we're doing everything within our power to keep this school on course. And also I shared with him that simply because we witnessed the failures of the past, that does not mean we should not step forward and set a goal before us to train men for the ministry. There is an emergency need in the grace movement that men be raised up, or brethren, humanly speaking, we're going to die on the vine. Now, I know God can overrule that, and he can raise up men of these trees out here if he so desires to preserve his message, and I'm sure he would and could. But nevertheless, as we know, he often works through the human channel, doesn't he, to execute his word and bring men into the ministry. So we're stewards, and we have to uphold our responsibility to make this blessed truth known. Then in verse 3, we also learn we're in a battle, a battle royal. And if you're standing for the gospel that was committed to Paul, I'm here to tell you this morning that you're going to receive opposition. And Paul knew that. And Paul knew that Timothy was struggling somewhat in the faith. And so he's seeking to challenge him. 
and not only challenge him, but challenge us as well. He says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now notice that Paul encourages this young man in the faith to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Endure hardness. Timothy, don't be hard, but rather endure hardness. So it shows to us that we are in a fight, in a battle. We are to fight the good fight of the faith. Not only are we to proclaim the truth, but we must also at times stand in defense of it as well, because there are enemies all about us. Now let's hold our place here for a moment, and let's look at some of the battles that Israel had, just for a moment, in Joshua chapter 1 in verse 6. There's something that's interesting that is said here that we want to compare with ourselves in this dispensation. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. Here we read, Be strong and of good courage. This is the Lord speaking to Joshua. Moses has just passed off of the scene, and now the mantle has been passed to Joshua. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do all according to the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. So here we note that as Joshua was about ready to lead the nation Israel into the promised land, notice how the Lord encourages him. Joshua, be courageous. Be strong and go forth, dispensationally now, with the law. Observe the commandments that were handed down to you by my servant Moses. Because there were enemies in the land. And it's interesting that God left those enemies before Israel. And one by one, as she obeyed the word of the Lord, she conquered her enemies as she was entering into the land. And whenever she disobeyed the word of the Lord, there was a setback for her, and she would lose the battle. And so the point is this, God purposely left those enemies before her that they might rely upon him and not upon their own strength. And that's a lesson that we must also learn in the dispensation of grace. To Joshua, it was, be strong in the law, obey the commandments. But when we turn to Paul's epistles, it's be strong in grace. And we too have enemies. Why, if Israel was to go into the land and receive the blessings, she could only appropriate them as she was obedient to the law. 
and the land was on the earth. They were looking forward to that milk, that land of milk and honey. But today, as we look at the dispensation of grace, we have the heavenly hope. And if we want to appropriate and appreciate our heavenly blessings in Christ, we have to recognize that we too are in a battle, a spiritual battle. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. And notice what it says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Very similar phraseology. But now we note that the phraseology back in Joshua and here in Ephesians differs because there are two distinct programs and two distinct people that are being addressed. Back in Joshua's day, it was Israel and their earthly hope and earthly blessings and material blessings they would receive in that kingdom. But with the setting aside of the nation Israel and the raising up of the Apostle Paul, God has adjusted things and he has brought forth a new administration called the Dispensation of Grace. And now we are living under the administration of grace. And a new set of commandments in Christ has been imparted to us. We call them the doctrines of grace. The truth of the one body. The truth of the one hope of our calling. The truth of our one spiritual baptism. And we are to stand in defense of these doctrines of grace. We are instructed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might because we have a formidable foe, the devil himself and the powers of darkness. And there is a spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. Satan is trying to destroy the effectiveness of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And so, consequently, we must first acknowledge we're in a battle, and then secondly, put on the whole armor of God. And notice there are six pieces of armor. The first three pieces of armor were to be placed on and left on. You'll remember that Paul had been incarcerated on more than one occasion. And he observed these Roman soldiers walking in and out as their shifts would change, the changing of the guard. And he also noticed the various pieces of armor that they had on and that some they left on and others they would take and they would go over and set in the corner. In verse 14, as we look at our spiritual armor that we are to put on in Christ, we read, Stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth. So the first piece of armor we are to put on is to gird ourselves with the truth. And I take that to be the whole counsel of God in light of the Pauline revelation. You see, brethren, 
you have to be prepared before you actually go in to the battle. Otherwise, you're going to be a spiritual casualty. Why, a young man who is going off to war, they do not take those young men and fling them right into the heat of the battle. It takes years and years to methodically train these men how to fight on one-on-one -on -one combat and how to shoot straight and hit the target, hit what they're aiming at, and also the various strategies of the enemy. And you know, it's no different in this spiritual warfare. We have to acquaint ourselves with the enemy, who he is, and his various tactics. And then we have to gird on that truth. We have to be prepared. When someone challenges the deity of Christ, you shouldn't have to say, well, I have to go talk to my pastor first to see how to defend this truth. That ought not to be. Why, those passages ought to be right on the end of your fingertips. Or if someone challenges the distinctive apostleship and message of Paul, you should be able to turn to those scriptures to defend the word of God. Don't wait until you're in the heat of the battle. Then we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I don't think this is the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive at the moment of our conversion because that is never said to be put on and the implication here with all of these pieces of armor is that they could perhaps be taken off or some have been careless and haven't put all of them on so this is not imputed righteousness that is given to us by a divine act at the moment of our salvation rather this is a practical righteousness knowing the difference between right and wrong based on, not the world standard, but based on the Word of God. You have to learn from the Word of God what God expects of you, what is right and wrong, and what is His will. Is it His will for our young people who are coming to the point where they're beginning to date, to date the unsaved? Well, if you understand the practical righteousness of the Word of God, you know that they should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If you can't marry them, don't date them. Why begin a relationship that you cannot bring to a conclusion? Then in verse 15, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, we know we have the peace with God in Romans 5, and then in Philippians 4, we have the peace of God. And I think here again, Paul is referring to the peace of God, that peace which passes all understanding, that no matter what flood of opposition might come your way, you can stand true to the word of God, knowing that he is sovereign. And he is working all things out according to the counsel of his own will. And whenever that precious loved one at times is taken from you, you can rest in that peace of God which passeth all understanding and have that blessed hope that someday soon you'll see them again. You might not understand all the whys and the therefores, 
and you don't have to. But one thing you do have to understand is God is a God of love and mercy and kindness. And he's only going to do what's best for us. And all things in the end are going to work out for his honor and glory and for our good. And then in verse 16, after all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, there were two types of shields back in Paul's day. You had the, the round one where they would put it on their forearm like this, and when they went in the battle, they would just, it was lighter, they could throw it up quickly. But then you had somewhat of an oblong one that was rather large and Probably most of us couldn't even pick it up, let alone carry it across the battlefield. Uh, back then, the Roman soldiers, what they would be classified, what I call a man's man, and they picked that thing up and they carried it, and then they'd put the thing down because it had a point at the bottom, and they'd shove it down into the ground, and then they'd get down behind it when all the fiery darts were being hurled at them. And spiritually speaking, that's what we must do too. We must take the shield of faith. Faith is simply believing God, believing what he has said. And so we take that shield of faith when the attacks come our way and we protect ourselves with it. And the faith that we learn and we gain from the scriptures will give us a balance in our Christian lives. And you'll be able to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then, as we go on to verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, there are three tenses of salvation taught in the Word of God. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Past, present, future. And here I think Paul is referring to the second tense, which would be sanctification. That is, we are set apart unto God and from this world system. And that's what Paul means back there when he was instructing Timothy. The one who's going to the battlefield doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of this life. Rather, he is desiring to please his master or the general that is over him. He's following orders for the common cause and for the common good. And so with that in mind, as we live a sanctified life in Jesus Christ, that means we're not going to become entangled in the affairs of this world system, but rather we're going to live separated lives. Now, I know that's not popular today in the church. In fact, there's so much worldliness in the church today that it's difficult to distinguish between the church and the world. I just came up the street here, and uh, they're having a good time down here at one of the corner churches. They're having a jazz worship service. Now, I can expect to see something like that in the world, but not in a quote-unquote Christian church, so-called. It just ought not to be, brethren. There should be something different about the believer in Christ. 
something that the world is drawn to, that they want what we have because they don't have the peace with God in their hearts. And when they see that peace in us, and when they see that stability in our Christian life, that we walk and we walk with a purpose, that they want that too, that they desire that. But it, you know, if you're so worldly, they can't tell the difference. What kind of testimony is that? We have to be sanctified. And finally, we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I've often pointed out concerning that phrase, Word of God there, that's not the normal Greek term logos, but rather it's the Greek term rima. It has the idea of just a portion or a section of the Word of God. And so I suggest this for your further study, and it is this, that whenever we go forth into the battle to fight the good fight of the faith, you have to use Paul's epistles to defend yourself. True, as we look at the broader picture, gird ourselves with the truth of God, that's the whole counsel of God, the fundamentals of the faith that which would be evangelical, that salvation is by grace through faith on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. That's the broad scope. But then as you come down to the narrow scope of Paul's revelation, you have to effectively use the sword of the Spirit to rightly divide the word of truth to distinguish between prophecy and mystery and between that kingdom gospel and the gospel of the grace of God. And you can only effectively do that as you understand Paul's revelation. So we don't want you to be a spiritual casualty. Rather, we want you to be strong in the Lord. Not only has God dispensed this truth to you, he expects you to stand for it as well. But then you have to follow the rules as well. Let's go back to 2 Timothy. And verse 5, Paul says, And if a man also strive for the masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Here, Paul picks up the analogy now of the race, or one who is running in the race. And he had observed all the Ismithian games of those particular days, and he observed how these men trained. Why, in Rome, uh, history reveals to us they trained ten months, night and day, to prepare for some of these games. But not only did they have to be disciplined, they had to also play by the rules. Now, I learned something of that when I was a senior in high school. I was on the track team. And for the most part, I was a high jumper. But there were times when I would run in the 440 relay. And there were certain rules that were set down by the officials for that race. Number one, you didn't leave the blocks until the gun sounded. And if you did jump the gun, you only got a second chance. If you jumped the second time, you were automatically disqualified. Also, you'll notice on the tracks that there's lines 
painted on the track that go all the way around the track. They're there because you're not allowed to move from one lane to another in some of those races. And also in the relay races, there are marks that are horizontal as well. And so when you're handing off that baton, you have to do so before the runner in front of you crosses that line. So there were certain rules and guidelines that had to be followed. Otherwise, you could be disqualified. And you know, it's no different in our spiritual lives, is it, brethren? What profit is there if we proclaim the word of God, but yet our lives don't reflect it? We have to play by the rules and follow the guidelines that are set down in the word of God. And I think this concerning our young men who are desiring to train for the ministry. You know, I've held a couple of pastorates, and sometimes after a stirring message, whether an evangelist had been there or I had been preaching the word, sometimes one of the young men would come up and he wanted to be ordained next week that he could preach too. Well, that's just not how it works, is it, brethren? Uh, he that desireth the office of a bishop desireth a good work indeed. But now it has to be determined. Is this desire merely of the flesh to want to have recognition in the glory of men? Or is this really, truly a desire and calling of God to enter full-time service? Now, once we determine which one it is, then the man has to go through a certain amount of training. Isn't that what Paul did with Timothy here? Did not Timothy go from town to town and city to city with the apostle being grounded in these matters of faith? And it wasn't until the point that Paul felt confident with young Timothy that he started to push him out of the nest and left him at Ephesus to preach Christ and him crucified. And so then after the training process, then the man needs to have a call to a particular ministry whether that be the pastorate or the mission field or a Bible study class. It is then and only then after three or four years that we would lay hands on this man and ordain him into the ministry, recognizing that, yes, he is called of God, and we do believe he is going to be used of the Lord. And so there are guidelines set down in the Word of God. And this is true in every area of our spiritual lives. That's why you need to be here Sunday after Sunday to learn what God's Word says concerning your life, that you might walk worthy of your calling. Three keys to commitment. You have to be committed to the cause, you have to understand you are in the midst of a spiritual battle. You have to put on the whole armor of God. And thirdly, you have to follow the rules to the letter, lest you be disqualified. All that it might be said of you at the judgment seat of Christ when you look into the eyes of our Savior and to hear him say, well done. Well done. It'll make it all worthwhile, everything we go through in this life. Let's close in prayer, brethren.
Father, we thank Thee for this time with these dear ones. We're thankful that they're so attentive to Thy Word, and we pray, dear Lord, that they might appropriate these things into their heart by faith as they are truth. We pray that they might be Bereans to study to see if these things are so. And we'll be careful to give Thee all the honor and the glory and the praise and adoration in the name of thy Son, in the name of thy precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.